everyone and welcome to the Chip Out Podcast. My name is Chris, I will be your host, and I'll be here every single Tuesday from now on deciphering the wonderful world of golf from the past week. If you like what you hear today, go check out our accompanying website at www.chipoutgolf.com. And if you want to get in touch with the show, email us at chipoutgolf at gmail.com or log on to our Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash chipoutgolf. Today we're going to be discussing plenty of topics, including anger management in golf, celebrities playing in professional golf tournaments, and whether or not the rules of the game need relaxing even more. We'll also be discussing the PGA Championship, but because we needed to get in depth with that, we're going to be making a special episode that will be released at the same time as this episode, going into all the details of next week's tournament, getting you ready for the second major of the year. But first, let's start with the British Masters. And what a sensational tournament it was. Played at Hillside Golf Club in Southport and hosted by local hero Tommy Fleetwood, Marcus Kinholt from Sweden eventually triumphed by one shot over Matt Wallace, Eddie Pepperell and Robert McIntyre. This was one of my favourite tournaments to watch this year. I've said this before on the podcast and I'll say it again, crowds and the golf course really do make a tournament special and this week was no different. The golf course was absolutely fantastic. It was just a, an eclectic mix almost, a sort of a hybrid of Heathland and Parkland golf course and Lynx golf course which was really interesting to see. There's not many golf courses that you see with that kind of mix in between. Obviously on Southport it was on the coast, so it's technically, I suppose, a Lynx course. But it really was fantastic just to see a different kind of course and see the players tackle it. Obviously on the Thursday, the scoring was super low, and the crowds were probably a little bit reduced because of the conditions, which obviously made scoring lower because of the wet weather. But 9-under to lead on the first day from Matthew Jordan, sort of out of nowhere, and then 16-under to be the winning total, just goes to show that the course really had some teeth to it. And with a bit of wind, it was very, very difficult to get that get the ball round on that golf course. The crowds were absolutely sensational. It just really elevates the tournament when you have knowledgeable, numerous crowds that, you know, line the fairways. Watching the final round, I couldn't believe how deep some of the crowds were going on some of the holes, especially following Tommy Fleetwood. The crowds were just huge. And it really elevated the spectacle of the tournament. It really created... A, an atmosphere, made you really care about the outcome of the tournament. And obviously we'll get to some of the contenders, especially Matt Wallace, a little bit later on. But first we've got to talk about Marcus Kinnell and what a performance it was for him. Feels like he's been on tour for quite a while now, but he's only 22 years old. And for most of those years that he was on the tour, he was making amateur appearances. So he hasn't been a pro for too long. To actually produce a win like that under real, real pressure on the final round, where he was forced to make birdies to win at the end of the tournament after he made his own mistakes. To come back and come back from back-to-back bogeys on the 15th and 16th after having a flawless round before that, and to make two birdies in a row on 17 and 18, it's just a fantastic achievement. Really showed a lot of bottle, really showed a lot of metal, and it was the kind of win that can you know elevate your career. I was even thinking that about the likes of Matt Wallace. If Matt Wallace won this tournament, it would be the biggest tournament he'd ever won. So it really goes to show that there was a lot on the line this week for Kunholt. And to come through like he did, under the kind of pressure from all sorts of players, from Pepperell posting 15 under early, from McIntyre joining him after his eagle birdie finish, it was really, really impressive to see him birdie the last, knowing that he had to birdie the last to win. Especially when he could have seen Matt Wallace put hold his putt just before, put even more pressure on him. Kunholt had missed six out of eight cuts coming into this week. So this performance has come absolutely out of nowhere. 
But the way that he closed out the tournament to win his first tournament on the European tour is really something quite special. And he definitely won't forget this for a long time. He's moved up from outside the top 200 in the world to nearly inside the top 100 now. So it's a huge win. And it's the kind of win that could, you know, like I said, elevate his career to the next step. He's close to getting into majors now. He's close to getting into WGCs. A couple more performances and he'll definitely be locked in for the race to Dubai. So it was a really, really fantastic win for Kinnell. And the way he held himself across the final round, being so consistent, so measured, and his attitude, which really stood out against sort of the antithesis of that in Matt Wallace. His calm attitude, his gracious attitude was really, really impressive to watch. And I think he gained a lot of fans on Sunday. Not all down to his own work and probably down to the work of Wallace, sort of losing fans and pushing them over to Kinholt. But Kinholt's performance definitely earned him some real fans. And I think he's going to be quite a popular golfer for years to come. And he's obviously so young that at the age of 22 in professional golf, you know, you can try and find your way for five to six years and fail and still turn out to have a fantastic career because you've got so much time on your side. What Kinnot's swing is smooth. He doesn't smash the ball. He doesn't hit it very far, like relatively to other golfers, even in that tournament. But he's straight. He's got fantastic positions in the golf swing. It's a pretty technically astute golf swing in terms of what you teach very on plane, very little change in the spine angle. He keeps his left arm gorgeously straight. He comes to completely parallel at the top. It's pretty much a technically perfect backswing, at least. And the way he comes through on the ball, he stays down on it. His spine angle stays exactly the same, even through a couple of feet through the swing. So that's the kind of swing, especially with the swing speed that he generates. It's not too strenuous. It's the kind of swing that's going to allow for a long career that swing could stay the same potentially for 20 to 30 years, which you can't say the same about every golfer. But moving on now to the host, Tommy Fleetwood. Tommy was in contention for a lot of the final round after his performance on Saturday elevated him up the leaderboard after his moving day performance. But we're going to start with one negative for Tommy Fleetwood, and that's nothing to do with himself as a person because he's the perfect role model, really. It seems like you can't put any flaws in him as a person. But there's one flaw in Tommy Fleetwood's game which starting to become more and more evident with as each as each week passes and as each time he gets into contention passes and that's that he really hasn't won very many tournaments he's won four tournaments on the european tour and of those four tournaments only three have come since his career resurgence he won the 2013 johnny walker uh, classic and since 2017 he won the 2017 abu dhabi tournament then he won the French Open in 2017 at the Golf National, where obviously he had great success in the Ryder Cup the following year. And then he went and defended the Abu Dhabi title in early 2018. So he hasn't won a tournament for nearly a year and a half now. Since he won the second Abu Dhabi tournament, he has contended numerous times, specifically on the PGA Tour, but he hasn't got the job done. On Sunday's final round, he shot one over par, which was the joint worst score of anybody in the top 40 players. He was the only player, other than Thomas Detry, who shot the same score, to shoot over par of anybody who finished in the top 25 golfers. Now, with the crowds that were supporting Tommy Fleetwood, with the performance he had on Saturday, with the golf he was clearly playing, and with his ability to grind out a score anyway, to shoot over par is really, really a poor effort, even on a very difficult golf course, when you're in contention. He ended up finishing 8th place. 
at 10 under par, six shots behind the lead. It would have taken a very, very good round for him to actually win this tournament. So there's no criticism there, but it's the way that he sort of fell off and was never truly in contention in the final round, which is a little bit worrying. I don't see Tommy producing four great rounds anytime soon. And the reason I say that is because you can look back at numerous times on the PJ Tour, tournaments last year spring to mind in the FedEx Cup playoffs even, and twice earlier this year where he had a 36-hole lead. I think he had a 36-hole lead at Bay Hill, and he had a 36-hole lead the following week. And both times he had a really large 36-hole lead. I think he was tied with another player both times, but he had a really big lead. And he produced a really, really poor Saturday round to take him out of contention. And then on Sunday, he produced a good round, but it was too late because his Saturday round was so poor. Now, for a player like Tommy Fleetwood, who, let's face it, everybody loves Tommy. Tommy is just one of the most beloved golfers in the world, especially in England. He's probably England's most popular golfer. And of course, it's very, very easy for me to just sit here and criticise Tommy saying, oh, he hasn't won more. And it's very unfair to measure players' success by their wins. He's had extreme success off the course. He's had success on the course as well. Obviously, he's reached the top 10 in the world golf rankings. You don't do that by being some chump. He's been one of the most consistent players in world golf over the last few years. And he's constantly put himself into contention. But you have to wonder what would happen if he had that ability to just keep calm under pressure, grind out any kind of score that he possibly can. But if things go a little bit awry, he doesn't seem to produce just an even par round. He's always shooting four or five under or better or two or three over or worse, you know, to the what the score's standard scratch par is, to what, like, go around hillside, the standard scratch on Sunday would have been about 70. Tommy's round would have been about three over par to the field. So if Tommy can just produce that grinding out round where he doesn't shoot any worse than even par to the course, doesn't really lose anything on the field, and could potentially gain something, then he's just going to win so many tournaments, and he could have won so many tournaments already. He could have won four or five PGA Tour tournaments over the last year, very, very realistically, with the positions he's put himself in. I want Tommy to win these tournaments. I think everybody in England wants Tommy to win these tournaments. But until he starts to actually put some wins together, maybe all it takes is another win to produce the confidence to keep getting the wins after that. But he's got a perspective in his life. You know, he's got a family, he's, he has a wife, he has his own children, he's got stepchildren. It's just, it is a bit unfair to measure his success by wins. And I don't measure his success by wins necessarily, but that's just one little chink in the Tommy Fleetwood armour, I do believe. But that being said, that's the only criticism I could possibly find with Tommy because he is just the absolute dream role model for young golfers in Southport especially, but all over the country, all over the world. The fact that he's such a popular name now in professional golf is so good for the game because, well, he's entertaining, he's charismatic, but he's just a genuine, natural, lovely guy. All these golfers have their moments. Rory as well. Rory does a lot of good work, but you can see every now and then that he just has enough of the media and he he's just done with it. For Tommy, it's never the case. Tommy always gives time to the media. He gives time to the fans. No matter how he plays, he's always respectful on the course. His demeanour is never angry. He's just exactly what you want a superstar golfer to to be like. And sure, some of this week's PR opportunities as the host, you know, were a bit contrived. Say, like, the Divot post that was on the European Tour where Tommy went to help fill in divots. But you still wouldn't see any other golfer in the world 
even if they were the host of a tournament, doing that and helping out the green staff, even if it was just a photo opportunity, Tommy is still trying to give thanks and give back to his local community. And the greenkeepers definitely don't get enough respect on the European tour or any golf course, really. And I think it's nice that he took time out to help them. Everything he did over the week was just fantastic. And he helped make this British Masters very special to watch. I'd absolutely love to have gone myself. I was a bit jealous of all the fans who were there. But Tommy's hosting was just fantastic. And you've got to give him credit for the way he holds himself. People like Tyrrell Hatton and Matt Wallace could definitely learn a thing or two from Tommy, along with the likes of Eddie Pepperell. The way that they hold themselves, no matter what their game is doing, no matter what the tournament is giving them, no matter what, whether they're struggling, whether they're having a great time on the golf course, their demeanour is always relatively even keel and they're always extremely respectful to the fans. And that's all you can really ask for. So for Tyrrell Hatton and Matt Wallace, who produce shows of petulance quite often and are often called up on it, especially Matt Wallace this week, we'll get to in a minute, they could learn a thing or two from Tommy. He's just he's not just a role model for young golfers. He's a role model for current golfers as well. And I think everybody should pay attention to that. But like I said, I really... But like I said, I'm sure many of you listening would agree with me completely. It's hard not to really, really want Tommy to win tournaments. He's just that likeable of a character. And I really do hope that he can come through and win a big tournament. And big tournaments nowadays for Tommy, winning a World Golf Championship would be great. But really winning a huge tournament, as in winning a major, I'm sure that's what's next on Tommy's agenda. And I really do hope he wins one. I really hope he crosses the line this week. He'd probably be the most popular winner other than Tiger Woods, which is really saying something. So that'll be a fantastic outcome. Touching on really quickly, Eddie Pepperell, who was also a runner-up finish. He played great golf on the final round. And even though he didn't seem to have his best stuff, he said in his interview after Saturday that he really was struggling and he hoped for a win-free day because it'll make it easier for him, which is quite incredible when you finish second place and you shoot a six under par bogey-free final round around a really difficult golf course. It just goes to show how much he's come on during the past couple of years as a player. And, and he is the caliber of player now who's a superstar and who's a potential major winning threat. Because his mentality, his attitude, and his game really does suit well for the majors. It's kind of like, oh, if I get in contention, whatever. I'm I'm playing golf. I'll get back to whatever I'm doing next week. I'll probably play golf again. He just seems like he's really just having a good time playing golf. And that's a really important aspect of professional golf. You really need to be enjoying what you're doing to have a chance to win, it seems like. Because if you're not having fun on the golf course, it's very difficult to produce good golf. I think most people can say that from experience, that when golf is not going well, you're not having fun. And when you're not having fun, you're not playing good golf. So for Eddie Pepperell, he's definitely one to watch for the PGA Championship. I mentioned that in the PGA Championship bonus preview. That's also going to be on all your podcast platforms. He's a really likable guy and he's another role model, just like Tommy, who we're very lucky to have in England. And he's definitely the kind of guy who's going to get more people into golf because his tweets and just his sense of humour is just so refreshing to see. It's so, well, it's kind of the opposite of refreshing. It's dry. But it's refreshing to have somebody who really doesn't take themselves too seriously on the tour. Because a lot of players do. It was also a great performance from Robert McIntyre as well. He finished eagle and birdie just to miss out by one shot. It was a sensational finish. He's a name to remember for sure now. He's probably locked up playing privileges into next year. 
So he'll be on the tour for a few years now, and he's definitely a name to remember. But now on to the most controversial part of the week, and that was entirely belonging to Matt Wallace. Now, one of the main things everyone's going to remember from this British Masters is sadly Matt Wallace's performance on the last hole. He received a lot of backlash for the way he handled himself, not just necessarily on the last hole, but more of a continuation of what he'd been doing over the entire final day and on Saturday. He really did not cover himself in glory, damaging the 18th green, not really repairing his damage and not really showing too much remorse. Okay, he apologised on Twitter, but he wasn't really too apologetic over his actions. He received a lot of backlash and he probably lost a lot of fans for that. It's really not what you want to see from a player who's become so popular from the way that he plays golf. You don't want to see a player who fights, who grinds, who does everything you want from a golfer, who seems like a really lovely guy, to then just sort of lose his cool, lose his perspective on the game. And that's a really worrying thing to see from Matt Wallace, but it's not a new thing to see. I've talked about this numerous times on the Chip Out podcast and on chipoutgolf.com that I'm not very high on Matt Wallace, despite having a great start to the season, despite playing well even this week, and despite his incredible talent, because of his attitude. He said it himself this week that he talked about a change in mindset. He talked about not beating himself up so much after every shot. He talked about not worrying about this golf tournament as if it was his last tournament, which is how he used to play the game until very recently. And he talked about having a bigger picture sort of mentality. You know, this week is not the be-all and end-all of his career. And he's going to implement that into his game. And on Saturday, although I mentioned just now that he was a bit a bit dodgy on Saturday, he was much better than his usual standards. Normally, he's very, very passionate on the golf course and missed shots don't go down too well. But on Saturday, he dealt with bogeys very, very well. It seemed that his attitude had been sort of shifted or at least he was concentrating on on having perspective in his game because he went over 40 holes, I think 45 holes or something like that, without a bogey from the start of the tournament, which is incredibly impressive. But when he bogeyed the hole, he then proceeded to double bogey, I think two or three holes later. And Matt Wallace of a few weeks ago really would have been furious with that. He would have been absolutely livid with himself for letting shots go like that, letting shots go that easily, even though he'd been rattled by hitting a fan. But it it wasn't to be because he composed himself, he was calm, he was cool, he was collected. He shot one under for those final three holes and he ended up being in a tie for the league going into Sunday. Even in his post-round interview, he said, I'm very, very happy with my position, I'm happy with my round and I was having good fun there out there. He was smiling. Yeah, he could have been four or five shots better very comfortably on his round and have a big lead, but he was very happy with his position. He said, oh, you know, I've been focusing on my attitude. I'm really happy with how things are going and I'm delighted to be in this position going into the final round. Me as a Matt Wallace fan, I was thinking, fantastic, this is what I wanted to hear. This was the exact reason that I was put Matt Wallace on my sell list on the stock report a couple of weeks ago and it's the exact reason that I haven't been thinking he's going to produce that big result because... After the Masters, when he had that interview in the first round where he said he hated every minute, that was really not what you want to hear from a guy at his first time at the Masters. That's Everybody would give anything to go to the Masters or to even go and watch the Masters, let alone play at Augusta National. And Wallace seemed like the kind of guy people could relate to. He, you know, he's, he's had a really quick rise. He seemed really humble about his whole experience. 
And he still seemed like he had a small time mentality in his head in the sense of, you know, I'm trying to be as good as I can possibly be, but I'm still come from humble beginnings very recently and I'm, you know, wide eyed to be here. But the way he reacted after shooting only three over or something, he was still well in the tournament after the first round, was just very poor from him. And that's the kind of thing that I did not want to see from Wallace. And it's the kind of thing that sort of seemed like it snowballed a bit into the next week when he missed the cut after missing the cut at Augusta. It seemed like he just had a, a mentality where if he didn't win that week, then that was everything. That was everything that he put into the game, gone. And that's not the mentality you really need to have as a European Tour winner. You have to commend his winning mentality in the sense that he's desperate to win, but you can't be that naive about the game. You can't win every week. Even Tiger Woods could not win every single golf tournament. In his prime, he still only won 10... Well, he still only won... In his prime, he won 10 or 12, I think, tournaments in one year. I think that's what Vijay Singh did as well. In the year, there's like 40 to 50 tournaments on the PGA Tour and just a bit less on the European Tour. You can play 40 tournaments in a year if you really need to. So you can't win every tournament. You've got to put yourself in position. And when you put yourself in position, try and take your chances. And it seemed like that's what Wallace was doing this week. Yet all it took was a few things on Sunday not to go Wallace's way. And his new mentality just completely went out the window. Perhaps he was trying to look bigger picture mentality today. Especially when he did his mid-round interview with Tim Barter. He seemed calm. He seemed composed. He was like, oh yeah, I'm going to see if I can get some birdies here. And I liked his mentality. It was very similar to the mentality he had last year at the British Masters when he was chasing down Eddie Pepperell. But that bigger picture mentality that he perhaps started with just out the window very, very quickly. As soon as his putts weren't going in, it was the blame everybody but myself mentality. And that is such a toxic attitude to have on the golf course. It's the number one way to get beat by the game. You don't even get beat by your opponent. Wallace wasn't necessarily beaten by Kinholt. Although Kinholt produced some great golf down the stretch, he had to birdie his last two holes to finish at 16 under, which Wallace could have got to quite easily if he was producing decent golf and he obviously had huge chances on the last two holes to get to 17 under so Wallace beat himself if you don't take ownership of your mistakes of your shots then how are you going to get any better how are you going to improve how are you going to move on and that's something I find with all the best players in the world there are very few players if you look in the top 10 to 20 players who are the true elite players I don't think you can find one player, perhaps maybe John Rahm, but he's got all the talent in the entire world. Other than that, you can't find one player who truly blames his caddy, who truly blames other people. Spieth used to do that quite a bit, but he's fallen way down the rankings and he's doing it more now because perhaps because the golf is not so good. You look down that list and maybe Bryson DeChambeau is one of those players. But even still, it's not to the extent of the likes of Matt Wallace and the likes of Tyrrell Hatton. There's just not too many positive things that you can possibly find about players who complain that much. And for Wallace, it's such a toxic thing because he'd been putting on the same greens all week. Everybody's putting on the same greens. To blame the greens on the 18th hole by tapping it down the ground or whatever the problem was... Sure, the ball may have bobbled a little bit. I don't think it bobbled even that much. But to pop down the ground like that when 
you could have done that prior to the putt. You can tap down your spike marks prior to the putt now. It's legal to do. There's no excuse for blaming the greens. Everybody's putting on these greens. You've been putting on them all week. You missed the putt. You didn't tap down the spike mark. You lost the tournament. It wasn't your caddy. It wasn't the greens. It wasn't the fans. In my opinion, caddies get too involved in this thing because caddies almost act like they're part of hitting the shot. A caddy is just there to carry your bags, really. You can do anything else you want. It's all your decisions. What goes through your brain does not go through your caddy's brain. And it's not like Inception. The caddy can't put (laughs) their own ideas into your head as much as they may try to sometimes, it seems, especially on the PJ Tour. It's good to have a discussion. It's good to have somebody there to keep you calm. It's good to have somebody there to help you with green reading, to help you with yardages. But in reality, you make the swing. You hit the shot. Wallace cannot blame his caddy. He cannot blame the fans. He is hitting the shots. And that's something that has driven me personally and a lot of other people crazy about Tyrrell Hatton, for say, who's such a talented golfer, but he does all the wrong things in that sense where he always blaming somebody else. And that's just one of the most frustrating things as a golf fan. Don't blame somebody else. It's not my fault watching at home on the TV that you missed that putt. It's your fault. The golfing gods don't play favourites. They dish out all sorts of good luck, bad luck to everybody around the world, especially bad luck, it seems. It's your job as a golfer to deal with the luck. Whatever luck you get, if you get good luck, they always say you should capitalise on that luck. But the most important thing is you don't make a mistake from that luck. And if you get bad luck, it's important to reduce the damage. You really just need to deal with the ups, deal with the downs, and they'll balance themselves out in the end. I think it's fair to say that. You'll get good breaks, you'll get bad breaks. A spike mark on the last green, which you could have tapped down yourself, if it was in your line, then I don't see why you didn't do. It's not the reason to blame for missing that putt. And I'm sure in Wallace's head, he wasn't necessarily blaming the green. It was just probably upset that he missed the putt. But either way, it's unacceptable to be that sort of petulant on the final green when someone else it could be winning their first tournament. It's disrespectful to Kinholt. It's disrespectful to Richie Ramsey, who they also played with. It's disrespectful to the greenkeepers, to Hillside Golf Club, and it's very, very disrespectful to the fans. Because the fans like to see respect in the game of golf. That's part of what golf's all about. And they don't want to see somebody being disrespectful in the game. It's really one of the most frowned upon taboo things you can possibly do. So Wallace has to be very, very careful with his attitude going forward. It's really, really good that he seems to have acknowledged that it's a flaw in his game. But he's got to do something about it because if he starts to lose popular support as well, you don't have as much of a safety net underneath you when times aren't so good. And you don't have as much of a wave of support to ride yourself on, to elevate yourself to the next level. Either way, he's got to be more respectful of those players around him at the very least. And I think that starts with taking ownership of your own mistakes. That's the number one thing to do. So we'll see if Wallace does it. You never know. He, the thing is, he's so talented that he may even come back next week and somehow even win the PGA Championship at Bethpage. That's the kind of talent that he has. I don't expect him to, but I really do hope that he realises his mistake this time. And it's the kind of eureka moment in his head that says, right, I've really got to change my ways here for good. I've really got to 
continue with this new mindset that I'm thinking of. And it's going to help both my game and my appreciation of the sport. And that perspective, I really do hope that he gets it. I'm sure he will, actually. Wallace seems like a really down-to-earth guy. He seems like he's got his head screwed on right. So he'll know, he'll know he's done something wrong here. And I'm sure he'll be looking to rectify that in his future appearances and his future actions. But that brings us on to a really interesting topic that I thought I'd talk about, given Wallace's performance and, and actions on the 18th hole at the British Masters. And that's rage in golf. Now, every player, every golfer will understand what it's like to be really, really angry when they play golf. Everybody experiences it because it's just part of the game. The game of golf is an extremely frustrating game. And some people have more angry dispositions. Some people have more calm dispositions. But even the most calm of golfers can boil under the surface. I know from personal experience, I've played with a lot of golfers who are super calm and they just hit one shot. It doesn't even seem like it may be too bad of a shot. They may even be playing quite well, but it just really gets them because it's the kind of shot which, it could be any number of circumstances. It could be a shot which was so poor that it just makes you so frustrated with yourself for hitting that shot. It could be that you're playing so well and you've just thrown a couple shots away from hitting a really poor shot. Or it could be that you're actually not playing very well, but you're really grinding out a score. And then you just hit one shot, which undoes all your hard work. And it could be like a thin bunker shot from on, by the side of the green, which you take a triple or a double bogey and all your hard grinding work has just gone out the window. Those can be really, really infuriating as well. It's just particular shots. It could be the way you're playing in general. It's almost the most calm you could possibly be is when you're playing absolutely atrociously for the first four or five holes. Then you just chill out. You're like, right, I'm not going to shoot my handicap. You know, I'm just having a good time. I'm out here on the golf course. If it's a sunny day, you really appreciate the fact you're just playing golf. <laughs> the irony in that is just incredible. But there's no doubt that it's different for everybody. But everybody experiences it. Me personally, I'm pretty calm on the golf course for the majority of the time. But just like I mentioned, every now and then I can really get frustrated. The other day, I I haven't been really angry on the golf course in a long time. But the other day, I was doing what I just described. I was really grinding out a score. I was playing the front nine. I was really playing very, very poorly. But I was in a decent position score-wise compared to my handicap. I was actually probably level with my handicap. And I had a few par fives ahead of me. I had a par five, a par three, and then another par five, and then a drivable par four, all in a row. And I'm thinking, right, I can really produce some good numbers over these holes and get back to a really good score, even though I'm playing absolutely terribly. I get on the tee of the par five, and I hit a very poor drive. But I get lucky with it. Now, I'm in a strange sort of stance, but the lie is really good, and I can hit three wood around the corner of this tree. So... Unlike what this podcast is called, I was definitely going for the green on this one. And I actually hit a really good shot. It doesn't quite fade enough, but I've ended up about 30 to 40 yards to the left and short of the green. In a sort of really weird position. It's sort of in between two trees around a cart path, but the lie is very good. It's sort of in a, a lot of area which could have been a really, really poor lie and I would have been in real trouble. But the lie is really good. 
I have a shot up the hill, slightly into the wind, on a raised green, with about 10 yards of green to work with on a 40-yard shot, and a bunker to clear in front. There's an overhanging tree about 10 yards ahead of me, and this tree is really in play with the shot, because to get the required height, I had to probably take a, a lob wedge or a sand wedge to actually get the required height to stop the ball on the green while still rolling out long enough to get to the pin. Because the pin was at the very back, so if I hit it too far, it's going to go over the back. So there's quite a few gaps in this tree, quite big gaps, but there are a few hefty branches. And all I have to do is hit a pitching wedge through these gaps, keep the ball low enough for one branch, and then get into, sort of bump it onto the green. And if it goes a little bit long, it goes a little bit long, but there's potential to actually stop it before the hole because it's coming in so softly from 40 yards. Instead, I take a lob wedge and I try and knock it down on this kind of squiffy lie. It's a good lie, but it's a squiffy lie. And it comes out so high, it hits the tree, and all of a sudden it goes behind a tree, and then I have to chip out into a bunker, and I fat my bunker shot, which is all the way up a hill. It's a really, really, really difficult shot. Very difficult to bump and run it up the green. And I end up two-putting for a double bogey on this par five. And I just was so furious. I threw the ball so hard to the next tee that I actually hurt my shoulder a little bit. And that's the kind of thing that can just switch you off. I hadn't shown any sign of anger really in a long time playing a game of golf. I'm pretty calm when I play. But it's just that one moment of throwing everything away when I could have got a birdie instead of make a double bogey and all my hard work of grinding on the front nine, even though I'm playing really poorly, it's just out the window. And moments like that help me relate a lot more with what the likes of Hatton and Wallace go through. If they're really quite angry characters when they play the game and passionate and, you know, their frustration comes through, it must be very, very difficult to keep your composure because if they're constantly expecting themselves to produce something and they don't produce it, there's not really much you can do about that except get quite frustrated. I've seen a lot of golfers as well who expectation is really the number one thing of this if you expect a lot of yourself you're going to get really frustrated when you don't achieve it golfers who don't care and just go out for a good time they'll still get angry if they play poorly like really poorly but they'll just have much more of a fun time of it if you really expect something out of your game that's when things can get quite tricky so it's interesting how different people deal with rage and golf i'd like to know how you guys deal with it and if you're an angry golfer per se or more of a calm golfer, let me know on chipoutgolf at gmail.com. I would love to know the correlation between keeping an even keel and producing good golf, or having the fire inside of you, getting really frustrated at each shot and producing good golf, because clearly both work. You had Wallace, who came second at the tournament, and Kinhole, who's pretty even keel, won the tournament. Same with Pepper, who came second, he's pretty even keel. And even McIntyre was. So you can produce good golf both ways. But I do think... It's pretty counterproductive. If you're as talented as Wallace, I think his talent is what gets him to the top rather than, anger's not the right word, rather than his fire and his passion. I think a more calm approach is beneficial to every single golfer because so many things happen in the game that you just can't control. If you really get angry about these things, they can, you know, they can overtake your mind, they can invade it. And there's not really much escape from that invasion. So it's an interesting topic to talk about. I'm sure we're going to see next week even more examples of this, given how difficult the course is going to be. 
So it's interesting to keep an eye on Wallace and see what he does, particularly. Especially Rahm as well. We'll get into more detail about John Rahm in the PGA Preview Show. But John Rahm is in what looks to be the preferable side of the draw. And he's got the perfect game for Bethpage Black. So he is going to be probably in contention. It'll be really interesting to see how he handles his emotions. Especially after what happened at the players earlier this year. Where he kind of completely lost his cool, lost his composure and lost the plot. So it's going to be a very intriguing watch this week for the more sort of angry golfers, shall we say. And Ram is definitely one who's got a lot to prove to a lot of people that he can produce under the extreme circumstances and that he can keep his mind clear and his composure in check. So it's going to be very interesting to see because I do expect Ram to be in contention on the Sunday. Again, go check out the PGA Championship Preview podcast. A special episode is going to be on your podcast provider to get into more detail about who's going to be in contention, we think, on the Sunday. And moving on now to the PGA Tour. This week was the AT&T Byron Nelson at Trinity Forest Golf Club in Texas. And Sun Kang ended up winning the tournament on 23 under par from two shots over Scott Piercy and Matt Every. Now, Sun Kang produced some great golf down the stretch. But he wasn't necessarily the story of the week. There was quite a few other stories this week going into the tournament and during the tournament, which were really, really interesting. Sun Kang played some fantastic golf over the final few holes and he got his first ever PGA Tour win. And congratulations to him. He's got a really quirky swing where he goes really slow back, a bit a la Ryan Moore. But then he stops more at the top and then really fires through during impact. It's quite a quirky swing, but it obviously works very well. He's quite a consistent player on the PGA Tour now. And he's been knocking on the door for a while. So congratulations to him. But the Trinity Forest Golf Club was really... It's not a very impressive golf course, in my opinion. I really did not enjoy watching. I didn't watch too much of the tournament because it was just very repetitive. Every fairway seemed a thousand yards wide. The easiest fairway you could ever hit. No real penal areas. And the greens were just enormous. And of course you had to hit spots on the greens, but if you can find the fairway, it becomes a lot easier to hit those spots because you have control over the ball, you have control control over the ball flight, and you can land the ball in certain areas and you can finish the ball in certain areas, nullifying a lot of you know, the difficulties of these golf courses. If you had penal rough, if you had proper bunkers that actually, you know, cost players shots, this course would be a fantastic golf course because the greens are so difficult. But that's the first story for me. It wasn't a very interesting golf course to watch. So it's going to be a very forgettable tournament. The second story that was really of note is Brooks Kepka's performance. And again, we're going to talk about him much more on the PGA Championship preview show. Kepka looked very, very ominous. He looked in his first appearance since the Masters where he finished run up to Tiger Woods by a shot. He looked absolutely fantastic. And he was hot with the putter. His driver looked just sensational which is so important at Beth Page Black again we're going to get more into him on the PGA Championship preview show so check that out but the third story which I'm going to talk about now is Tony Romo the Dallas Cowboys NFL quarterback made his third ever PGA Tour appearance this week he's not a PGA Tour member he's not a professional golfer and he's never produced anything of note in the game of golf he's a fantastic golfer in his own right he's a scratch golfer but he's not even anywhere near the upper echelons of amateur golf 
and he received an invite from the tournament to play. He finished at 8 over par, he missed the cut by 10 shots. He did beat 4 other golfers and it was his best ever performance on the PJ Tour. He had 2 previous appearances in the Dominican Republic. But Romo's performance, even though it was commendable, respectable shooting 8 over par, actually very respectable shooting 8 over par, is of interest because should he ever have been invited in the first place? The answer in terms of a golfing perspective is obviously not. He's clearly not good enough to be playing on the PJ Tour. He shouldn't be receiving all these invites. He's getting an unfair advantage by receiving these invites because every time he plays in the PJ Tour, he gets to watch, experience from inside the ropes and learn from the PJ Tour players. Access that, you know, regular people don't get. And sure, he's a celebrity, he's a big name in America. So he could play with these guys anyway. It doesn't need to be on the PJ Tour. You can read about this much more on our website at chipoutgolf.com. But it's really interesting to see celebrities, and it's becoming more common, get invitations into the PJ Tour. And when I say necessarily PJ Tour, I mean more professional golf. Because Tony Romo is actually the only player who's getting invitations to the PJ Tour. Steph Curry, who's an equally good golfer as Tony Romo, the NBA superstar, he gets invitations once a year to his local tournament in California on the web.com tour where he's actually put in three very very good rounds and one round where he sort of collapsed but he had a 71 in there and two 74s I think the year before or something even better than that perhaps he put in some really commendable performances and it was a web.com tour event now this makes a big difference because playing on the PJ tour is the highest level of professional golf and it really does in my opinion take a lot of credibility away from the tour because what they're doing is they're just saying right our professional golfers are not big enough draws for crowds and for viewership figures we're going to invite a famous nfl player and now commentator a big personality in america who's nowhere near good enough to play on the pj tour but we're going to invite him into this tournament to get more viewing figures this seems very disrespectful and lacks complete credibility in my opinion from the pj tour do you not have faith in your players as characters, as golfers, to produce the kind of golf and kind of performance that's going to draw in players? This week had the Masters champion from last year, Patrick Reed, and it had the three-time major champion, one of the biggest favourites for next week, Brooks Kepka playing in it. There was a lot going for this tournament, and it was in Texas with decent crowds. You have to wonder... What the players must feel like when they see that Tony Romo is receiving an invite. They think, oh, we're not good enough for the PJ Tour. They have to bring in some novelty act to you know, improve our ratings. And that's what this is. It's kind of a circus novelty act. No disrespect to Romo. He's a fantastic golfer. To shoot eight over par on that golf course from the very back tees. It is his home golf course, I believe. But still to shoot eight over par there is very impressive. But that doesn't necessarily justify his inclusion in the tournament. I don't think anybody should be a sponsor's exemption unless they have a very realistic chance to make the cut. I talk about this more online in my article at chipoutgolf.com. But a player like Ho Sung Choi, who is actually a professional golfer, who's in the top 300 golfers in the world, there is a sponsor's exemption that is extremely acceptable. He is a professional golfer. 
he is a very successful professional golfer. He's a very popular professional golfer because he went viral, of course, for his swing. And, you know, he's the kind of celebrity which would draw in crowds, but is also a very credible pick and credible addition to the PGA Tour. Hosung Choi could make the cut at a PGA Tour event very easily. He could also become a member of the PGA Tour in due time. He's the kind of player that sponsors exemptions should look for. And there's obviously a misconception going around social media as well that Tony Romo, by taking up this spot, takes another player's opportunity at, at making a living. It's not quite how sponsors' exemptions work. Sponsors, as you know, paying for all the paying for sponsoring an event, basically, they get certain privileges. One of those is to in, invite some players that don't have to qualify for the event. Two of those players can be any golfer in the world, off scratch or better who may bring a draw into the tournament that the sponsor necessarily deems, or the PJ Tour director, the tournament director. That's only two players, and those players, those sponsors' exemptions are open for all these golfers. So that means any golfer in the world that can be picked. Six of the other sponsor exemptions, they get to pick max eight, have to be professional golfers. Two of them have to be PJ Tour members minimum. So nobody's opportunity is getting stolen here. The real issue is whether credibility is being lost because Tony Romo is playing in this tournament. In my opinion, it is. I don't think Tony Romo should be getting this opportunity. It's one thing to have him play in one tournament. To have him play in three PGA Tour tournaments is almost taking taking the mickey a little bit. And it's demeaning to all the professional golfers out there who are clearly saying, told by their own tour that you're not interesting enough. You're not producing enough ratings we need to produce some radical changes and i think it's very disappointing from the pj tour that instead of actually looking at oh what are we doing wrong here what's inherently wrong nope it's the player's fault we're going to invite tony romo who's a big name he's going to save the day for the byron nelson and that's just not right they should be saying oh hang on a minute it takes every golfer six hours to play a round of golf on the pj tour hmm i wonder why Oh yeah, because we don't penalise them any shots when they take three minutes lining up a putt from three feet. You know, those are the kind of problems that are probably driving people away from watching professional golf. European Tour is taking the lead in this. We talked about this a lot on last week's podcast. We're not going to get into it. But the PJ Tour really needs to think about letting people like Tony Romo play. I don't think he should be eligible. I think the sponsors' exemption rule should be changed. It won't be because... Tony Romo brings in money for the tournament. Tony Romo also decreases the credibility of the PGA Tour, so it doesn't seem like that's an issue for the PGA Tour at the moment with the slow play. So, you know, as long as they're making money, they seem happy. But to me, this should not be the case. And call it maybe old-fashioned, but you'd never see Tiger Woods make an appearance on the World Snooker Tour. Or you'd never see Rory McIlroy go on playing at an ATP Tour event. It's just not... You'd never see it. And that's not to say that some professional golfers aren't capable, like Sergio Garcia is a very good footballer. You'd never see Sergio Garcia getting the opportunity to play, you know, fourth tier, third tier professional football. Just not how it works. Sports stars from other sports who are as good as golf as golfers are at their sports, they get to play professional golf tournaments. Clearly, the golfers have no chance of going to their other sport. And, you know, that's something that bothers me a little bit. So 
Now, if Tony Roma actually made a cut at one of these events, if he kept getting invites, which it looks like he probably will, because he's so popular in America, if he actually makes a cut at one of these events, then the story is a little bit different. Because if you're capable of making a cut at a PGA Tour event, then no one can really question whether you not necessarily belong on the PGA Tour, but no one can ever question that you're good enough to play on the PGA Tour, because you are, if you can make a cut at the PGA Tour event. That's all we've got time for today, everybody. Thank you so, so much for listening. Again, go check out the PGA Championship Preview Podcast, which is also available right now. That podcast will be a little bit short than this one, but we'll be discussing absolutely everything about the PGA Championship. There'll be no stone left unturned, and there'll be some really good predictions and previews there for you to listen to. Get yourself hyped for the PGA Championship, which starts this Thursday. We'll be back again this time next week with a brand new episode of the podcast. Until then, remember... Go check our website at chipartgolf.com. We've got plenty of articles and features there, including a really good quiz on major championships for you to get stuck into before next week's podcast. Thank you so much once more for listening, everybody. Happy golfing and see you next time.